At Urban Farm Podcast, we are all about education, and April is Foliar Feeding Month. Have you heard of it? It is a super simple application of spraying liquid organic fertilizer on your trees and garden plants. The leaves, branches, and trunks are incredible at absorbing nutrients. And if your soil isn't great or your pH is off, foliar feeding is a quick and long-lasting fix to get your plants the nutrients they need. Want to learn more? Join us for our free online webinar on how to apply this amazing process to your gardens and fruit trees. Visit urbanfarm.org to sign up. That's urbanfarm.org. Greetings, urban farmers, gardeners, and healthy food visionaries. Greg Peterson here, and welcome to the 308th episode of the Urban Farm Podcast, where every day we work together educating and inspiring you to become part of your food revolution. Healthy food is something that everybody wants. Delicious and nutritious and right outside your own door is even better. Just text GARDEN to 44222 or visit IWANTTOGARDEN.COM and you'll receive our free webinar about the seven key factors you need to know to grow your own food. Today on our podcast, we have someone who can help us understand about seasonal markers in our area. We're talking with Ann Larkin Hansen about seasonal planting for the homestead. Ann is a homesteader and small-scale organic farmer, as well as a farm journalist specializing in sustainable farming and forestry. After she retired from farm reporting, she authored a number of books. Her latest, The Backyard Homestead Seasonal Planner, What to Do and When to Do It by Story Press, is in bookstores now. She lives with her family on a farm in northern Wisconsin. Welcome to the show today, Anne. Are you ready to rock? Thanks, Greg. I'm ready. Excellent. So I shared a bit about you. Can you fill in the blanks for us and share more about the path you took to get where you're at today? I think I always knew since I was a little kid that I wanted to farm and I wanted to write. I always liked being outdoors, and I liked having something to do while I was outside instead of just looking at the scenery. And I also really, really like systems management, which is really what organic farming is at its core. You are managing systems. And because I've always loved reading and researching, journalism came as a natural progression for me, too. It's, it's really neat to go out and visit other farms, talk to other farmers, and see how they do things. I'm also the oldest girl of 13 kids, so I've, I've learned work and like it. <laughs> wow. So when we started this call a little while ago before we started recording, you said that it's 18 degrees outside today? Yes. We are now in early winter here in northern Wisconsin. And 18 degrees is early winter. What's deep winter feel like? <laughs> 18 degrees is common in deep winter, too. It's a little cold for early winter, so uh, we have the wood stove going for sure. Oh, nice. So you said Wisconsin. What's it like homesteading in Wisconsin? Well, we feel like we live in God's pocket here, but I hope every homesteader feels like that. It's a beautiful area. We know the trees. We understand how the seasons work around here. It's very comfortable, and it's very pretty. And you actually get seasons. So being here in the desert southwest, we have hot and not, and not a whole lot in between. But you actually have seasons there. I'll bet that's part of how your Homestead Planner book came about, yes? Well, one of the things as we started writing this book, the reason to write it was that because there's so many good ways you can do things in order at appropriate times, it really makes life easier and more productive if you can do that. But how do you define seasons in a way that works for everybody in the country? Because there's a lot of difference between Arizona. Basically, your winter is your summer. 
there. That's when things don't grow. Right. Compared to up here when we have relatively short summers and long winters. And what kind of markers do you find for seasons that are going to work for everybody in the country? And of course, in a local area, your marker is going to be the phenology, the the natural progression of what plants and animals are doing. I know when the red-winged blackbirds come back, I'm in late winter. I know that the grass really starts growing. We're probably in mid-spring. That doesn't work everywhere in the country. But what does work is looking at soil and air temperatures. So you know that once the soil gets above 40 degrees, you're getting into spring. If it never got below 40 degrees, you probably didn't have a winter. Once the air temperatures are consistently, you know, into the 50s and 60s, you're getting into late spring, summer, and that will work across the country, which is really nice. So that even, and you know, seasons are all different. Spring will come early or late, but if you watch those temperatures, then you know where you're at. It's a pretty simple approach and it works just fine. Yeah. So soil temperatures never get below 40. Where you are. Where I'm at here in the low desert. And you said spring is 60 degrees? No, we really divided the seasons into 12 seasons because if you think about it, fall, there's early fall, there's mid-fall, there's late fall, there's early summer, mid-summer, and late summer. And that's what works on a farm or a homestead. But I would say, you know, if <laughs> I'm just pulled out my list here. So mid-spring for me is when the soil temperatures are reaching about 50 degrees. This is all Fahrenheit, of course. Right. By late spring, you're looking at 60 degrees, and you can really start putting in some of your really warmth-loving vegetables and things mm-hmm. like that. Midsummer here, you know, when temperatures get over about 90 degrees, things stop growing. And right. midsummer, I guess you have long stretches of real hot weather. I've been in Arizona in the summer. It's really, really, really oh, hot. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Nothing's on. <laughs> so that's almost the equivalent of your winter. We rarely get that much warm weather. But still, that's what's going to define summer, except that your growing season is going to be topsy-turvy down there because you don't get winter. They're just guidelines, you know. It right. just kind of helps you know where you are in the season. And timing is really important when to do things. Yeah, so you've used the word markers a couple of times. I kind of get a sense of what that means. Can you give us a definition of that and how we would use it? If you don't have a soil thermometer to take the soil temperature and use that as your marker, then I would be watching what's going on around me and correlating it with what season you're in. For example, if there are three things that are grown in every state in the country, and that is alfalfa, wheat, spring wheat, and field corn. If the farmers are planting spring wheat, you know that you're in very early spring because that goes in the ground as soon as they can. Field corn next life's a little warmer, so that's going to be mid-spring. When they're cutting that first crop of hay, you're in late spring to early summer. Once again, the low desert's different. You guys will take 10 crops of alfalfa down there in a year, and you're not cutting in the dead of summer because that's when it's not growing. It's too hot. Right. But the principle still applies. As soon as you start seeing them cutting hay, you, you know where you are in the season. So at least you can correlate it to your seasons. Oh, yeah, exactly. So I'm looking at the table of contents of your book, and this is pretty well thought out, the different seasons. How did you come about this? Because this is beautiful. Well, thank you so much. You know, I collect farm books. I talk to farmers all the time. I read stuff, and there's so much information on there out there on how to do things and just about nothing on when. When do you do stuff? I mean, you can get planting charts from master gardeners and stuff, but... On our place here, we have raised livestock, 
poultry, fruit trees, big vegetable garden. We haven't done pigs for a long time, <laughs> but we did. And, you know, and we make firewood and we manage our woods. And how do you fit all that into your yearly cycle so you aren't overwhelmed with work at some times and underwhelmed at other times? And also so that when you do stuff, you're doing it at the best time to get the best results for the least effort. You can calve out your cattle in January if you want around here, but boy, you got to have heat lamps in the barn and it's just a pain. Why not do it on late spring on warm grass and everybody's happy and it's hardly any work involved. Right. So really this book is a manual for making life easier on a homestead? I like that. Yes, I would think so. And we cover the garden, the orchard, the barn, the pastures, the equipment shed, and the woods, if you have woods, if you're lucky enough uh -huh. to have woods, yeah. and then kind of go through season by season. And then in each chapter, we also talk about some of these foundations of homesteading, organic farming, soils. How do you maintain soil fertility in this kind of a system? How do you maintain a healthy woodlot? How do you figure out when to breed your animals? When's the best time to plant which vegetables? Things like that. It just I really wanted to kind of pull it all together in one spot. It's the book I wanted when I started. Oh, nice. How many have you written? I have written eight. Wow. All yeah. with story publishing? Seven with story publishing and one with, uh, the first one was with Bowtie. I believe they're defunct now. I don't know. I'll tell you what, Story is an amazing press. I love the work they do. I've interviewed a couple of them, you know, about doing books and they're just a really great company and they do really good work. Have you found that? Yes. And they believe in what they do. My editor, Deb Burns, is phenomenal and she also is involved in all this stuff. She loves all this stuff. Oh, yeah. Everything I've dealt with there is like that. They, yeah. they really believe in what they do, and they spend a lot of time making sure it's done well. Deb Burns is one of the people that I interviewed for my podcast. I'm going to look that up. <laughs> That's great. So are there things that you really can't do as a homesteader in certain areas of the country? Yes, and I like to talk about that because I see so often that people you know, move into a place and they want to do something that they're just crazy. It's not going to work. And you can waste a lot of time and money and emotion on things that just aren't going to work there. I would love to raise apricots. I love apricots. Yep. And I, you know, planted three apricot trees that were supposed to be adapted for this climate. And you know what? Not going to happen. <laughs> it's just not. They've been out there for 10, 15 years now. And I think I've picked maybe a handful of apricots. So it's just too cold here. Homesteading, so much of it is adapting to the environment you're in. Mm -hmm. You want to raise animals and plants that work in your climate, on your terrain, in these soils. I'm not going to grow apricots up here. You're probably not going to have summer bluegrass pastures down where you are. Bluegrass doesn't like hot weather. It's right. going to just shut down. Also, we've done a lot with breeding domesticated plants and animals over the years to adapt them to certain areas of the country. So the varieties of garden vegetables that I grow this far north are probably not going to do well down there, and you grow stuff that wouldn't make it up here. Uh, field corn's a great example. A couple hundred years ago, you couldn't grow field corn this far north. It was too cold, but we've bred varieties now that will mature in 80 days. Exactly. That brings us, of course, to the topic of heirloom vegetables and fruits and domesticated animals, and those are really worth looking at rather than trying to raise Brahma cattle up here in Wisconsin, which I have seen, and they are not cold adapted, or raise Scots Highland cattle down where you are because they were will be miserable and not thrive. Right. And you need to adapt to what you have, I think. And how would one go about figuring out what to do on their homestead in Arizona, you know, as opposed to Wisconsin? Well, I would first contact the guys at Urban Farm. They seem <laughs> to know what they're doing down there. <laughs> Thank you. 
There's all sorts of resource materials out there. Start with your local gardening associations, your agricultural extension agents. There's just tons of information. Farming is always very site-specific. When you get down to the real nuts and bolts of what you're going to raise and things like that, that's where you need to go is local information. That's what you want to check with. And then from the permaculture bend, I am a big teacher and proponent of permaculture. Observation. Observation is absolutely key. I think it's fundamental. Yeah. And then analyzing. I can see this is what how things progress through the year around here what's not working here what are the possible problems or reasons why this is not going right or why is it going right you know you've really got to think a lot that's part of the fun oh yeah well and i've lived here at the urban farm which for my listeners and for you that don't know i live right in the middle of phoenix if you stood on my roof and looked 50 miles in all directions you're going to see houses I just think that's so cool that you can do stuff anywhere you are. You just have to pick the right things to do. Yeah, exactly. You know, the urban farm is 80 feet wide and 160 feet deep. That's about, you know, a little under a third of an acre. I've been here 28 years. And one of the things I realized about 10 years ago was that I was still observing and still changing things so that they would work better after having lived here for 18 or 20 years. Of course. Yeah. And the other thing I noticed is that when I was looking to solve a problem here in my yard, one day I was walking in the neighborhood and somebody else solved it for me in their front yard. And I took that piece of data from them. I brought it home and implemented it and it worked great. Yep. I'll tell you, I have interviewed several hundred farmers over my career as a farm journalist. A lot of it was, you know, pretty selfish because I wanted to know what they knew that would help me too, Mm -hmm. not just to write the article. And you learn so much just talking to people. It's wonderful. Yeah, exactly. So I'm actually on your Amazon author page and I just want to do a shout out because these books look amazing. I didn't know I had an Amazon author page. Wow. Well, there you go. (laughs) <laughs> Maintaining Small Farm Equipment by Ann Larkin Hansen. Making Hay. Beef Cattle, Keeping a Small-Scale Herd for Pleasure and Profit. Electric Fencing, The Organic Farming Manual. Let's see here. There's one that goes back a little farther. Landowner's Guide to Managing Your Woods. Oh, yeah, that was a fun one to write. I wrote that with a master logger friend of mine and a consulting forester friend of mine. We had a blast. Nice. Oh, 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 we got to talk about this one. Finding Good Farmland, How to Evaluate and Acquire Land for Raising Crops and Animals. Tell me about that book. That sounds like a fascinating title. (laughs) I get so enthusiastic over all this stuff. I can tell. You see too many people, you know, they just want a piece of land so bad. They'll settle for anything and they wind up with a mess. And I am a firm believer that you can reclaim just about anything, but... How much time have you got? How much money have you got? How much willpower have you got to spend on that? And then there's some things you can't fix. What Some pieces of land are great, but they're on a curve in the highway. So every time somebody drives by, those headlights are going to shine through your house at night. Are yep. you okay with that? Right. Maybe you've got a great piece of land. It's in a beautiful area, but you really ought to get the groundwater tested because we have a huge groundwater pollution problem in agricultural areas. I think a lot of people aren't aware of that. Or, you know, is there an old dump on the land? Do you have zoning that's going to prevent a concentrated animal feeding operation from going in next door to you? These are all things that you really need to think about when you're looking at land and it's just a little pocket-sized book and we just wanted to raise the questions that you need to be asking about this stuff. And what kind of questions would you look for in an urban area? Definitely the zoning. You already touched on that. You want to know what zoning you're in, what you can and can't do. Can you keep chickens? That's a big one. Yep. 
You bet. I have served on our Township's Plan Commission for the past 14 years, and all these questions come up, and I would say go and acquaint yourself with your local ordinances, especially the zoning ordinances. Yeah, big time, especially if you want to keep chickens, because you would be surprised at the places you can and the places that you can't keep chickens. Yes, I'm always surprised. Of course, we had chickens forever, and I think they're just a great thing to have around. I don't know what the problem is. Maybe not roosters all the time. They, they make a lot of noise. Here in Phoenix, we can keep 20 hens in our yard if we have 10,000 square feet of land. Uh-huh. No roosters. You know, and I feel a little sorry for the hens because, yep. you know, <laughs> they like a boyfriend as much as the rest of us gals. And roosters are noisy. They oh, do yeah. get up early. But chickens, you know, think of the manure supply you get out of them. Oh, That's yeah. Just, yeah. It's all part of building that sustainable system. So you wrote a book about electric fences as well. Tell me a little bit about that. I did it at Deb Burns' suggestion because many farm publications get lots of interest in electric fencing. Everybody likes it. Nobody really understands it. And I would have to say that until I wrote that book and did all the research and talked to some of the people at the companies that do the R&D and develop the products and sell them, I was pretty fuzzy on some of the technical aspects too. But basically electric fencing is just a fabulous, versatile tool for any size farm or homestead or anything where you need to keep domestic animals in or wild animals out. It's versatile, it's cheap, it's quick. It really is effective if you do it right. Will it keep raccoons out? If you do it right. (laughs) Raccoons, they're very sensitive on their noses and the bottoms of their paws, and you would go to your electric fencing manual or the company and say, what's the best configuration of wires here to deter raccoons? Because if they're sliding under the fence, they aren't going to feel it through that thick fur of theirs. They've got to touch it with their hands or their nose. So how do you get them to do that? So each type of animal, you know, you might have to have a little different configuration to be effective against them, or you might have to do a heavier fence to keep out more types of wildlife. Deer, of course, are especially problematic, maybe not in central Phoenix, but, you know, in many rural areas. And what people find works really well with deer is is you have to do a three-dimensional fence because they have poor depth perception. So you run two lines of wire around the garden, and then you put a second line about three feet away from that, and space so it's in between the other two lines. I hope I'm being clear here. So it makes kind of a triangle of wire. It just freaks them out. They can't deal with it. So they leave it alone. Well, and the reason I asked you about raccoons is because, again, I'm in the middle of Phoenix. We have four and a half million people that live in the Phoenix metropolitan area. And just the other night on the back patio here at the urban farm was a great big fat raccoon. I think they're cute, but I don't like them around the house. Yeah. (laughs) Raccoons carry rabies. That's another reason I really don't like them around the house. Exactly. They bring in disease, uh, you know, in their scat. There's a lot of parasites in their manure and so on and so on. So we've been looking at different ways to fortify our backyard to kind of, you know, keep them away. And it hadn't occurred to me to put up electric fence until just now. Well, I wrote that book a couple years ago, so I'm pretty sure we put a chart in there with recommendations for how to fence for different kinds of wildlife. And then you can always, of course, go to the company Premier and Gallagher, I think, really do a fabulous job with their products and with their advice for people. Mm -hmm. So that if you put up a fence and are running into issues, the wiring that I recommend in the book, you know, maybe isn't enough, you've got too heavy of a pressure or something like that, they would work with you or I'd give it a shot too. Yeah. (laughs) tweak to make it work. Here's the other thing. About a year and a half ago, again, here at the Urban Farm, we lost 10 of our hens to a bobcat. Wow. In central Phoenix, we got 
raccoons and bobcats and javelina. Those are the little pigs, aren't they? Yeah, exactly. Foxes and wolves. And it's getting more exciting. I have talked to the fish and game here, and they said that because of the way we're managing wildlife these days, the populations are expanding and there's not really a whole lot they can do about it. Yeah. And that's a whole other podcast, I think. That's oh, very yeah. interesting questions. Page through that book and see what it does. Yeah, I can't remember the details or recommendations for different sorts of animals. And a good dog's always helpful too. Amen to that, man. So I'm going to shift on you and I'd like for you to talk about a time you failed, how you overcame that failure and what you might have learned from it. Well, you know, I have thought a lot about that over the years because when we bought this place, I wanted to do everything, everything you could possibly do in a homestead, I wanted to do. You find out that really nobody has that much time, energy, money (laughs) for all the different equipment. And so sometimes you have to make a decision that you will fail at something. And that is my definition of failure. Failure is when you quit trying. Everything you do here is on an experimental basis, really. You're always fiddling with it, trying to make it better, tweaking it, seeing how to do things differently next year. And that's part of holistic management, which I follow. And the thing that I really decided to fail at early on was row crops. I badly wanted to have, you know, a classic four-year rotation with field corn, oats, and two years of forages. It works very well in this area. But I realized after a while we had three young kids. My husband has never been interested in the farm, but fortunately he works and (laughs) provides some cash flow. And I was working off the farm as a reporter as well. And also, you know, we had livestock, we had a big garden, we had orchards. And to do row crops would have been a fairly steep learning curve. I did do it a couple years. I can do it. I'm not great at it. But the line of equipment you need, the time investment, and getting things harvested especially was just proved to be too much. I gave it up. And I'm okay with that. You know, that's a beautiful way of looking at success is actually choosing, or failure in this case, what you choose not to do anymore. Yeah, well, sometimes you just screw up. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that that happens too. (laughs) Here's my piece of advice here. Don't stop, right? Yeah, just keep going at it. There's so many different things you can do. You just kind of keep feeling around and finding out what you like, what suits you, what's going to work. So what do you consider your biggest success? We're still here. We're happy. We've had a fantastic time. Our kids were raised here, but we still can hardly get rid of them. We're eating great food. We're healthy. We are outside every day. What more success do you need? And that's one of the things that I do here at the Urban Farm. I actually work at home, and I have this little studio off of the back of the house. You know, when I get tired or frustrated with the computer technology and being, you know, in my late 50s, technology is something that I put up with in my life. I'm the same age, and I agree, yes. Being able to walk out on the farm and go get my hands in the dirt and feed a chicken and peel an orange this time of year is just, you know, it makes all the difference in the world. Yeah. Why would anybody want to live any differently than this? You know, you can pick your lunch during the growing season. It's great. Yeah. The eggs are unbeatable. Exactly. So what drives you? You know, I probably read too much Little House on the Prairie when I was a kid. But seriously, I like working with my hands. I like building systems. I hate being bored. I love being outside. Check all those boxes. What do you come up with? Oh, you're a farmer. <laughs> so, and I just feel a real responsibility towards the earth. I, of course, came of age just as the modern environmental movement was really taking off. And it just made a tremendous amount of sense to me that we should live in a way that we leave things as good or better than we found them. The earth, everything. Mm-hmm. It's just a very satisfying thing. That's all I want is that inner peace that comes with trying to do the best you can. So if you could recommend one book for our listeners, what would it be and why? Will you let me recommend four? Okay. (laughs) 
the first one I would recommend, and this is the foundation of sustainability, and I consider organic a subset of sustainability. So is Holistic Resource Management by Alan Savory, that's S-A-V-O-R-Y. I would strongly recommend that you track down the first edition because it has so many concrete real-life examples in it. It's a mental tool set for building sustainability on your farm, and he gives so many examples in that first edition that are lacking in later editions. Wow for how to think your way to making all this work together. It's just brilliant. It works. It works for me. I have plenty of friends that I know it works for them too, and I would strongly recommend that. It's a little esoteric and heavy, so if you wanted something a little more inspirational, I would recommend the books by uh, Lewis Bromfield, B-R-O-M-F-I-E-L-D. They were written really in the 40s, and they are about him coming back to Ohio after living in France and reclaiming what was once his grandfather's and uncle's farms. And they had eroded and just made a mess of. And what happened was he just applied all the things that we are still doing today. You know, he renewed the soils by growing green manures and plowing them down. And he put livestock back on the land to have that manure available and put forages back in his rotations. All those things. They're a delightful read. The books are Pleasant Valley and Malabar Farm. And Malabar Farm is now a state park, and you can go and visit it and see his work. Very neat. And then if you're thinking about just nuts and bolts, what do you do to get going on a homestead? Farming for Self-Sufficiency. Again, it's an older book, but it's a classic by John and Sally Seymour, S-E-Y-M-O-U-R. And it just kind of walks you through every piece of a homestead and how they handled it and why. It's like sitting down with a neighbor. So those are the books I would recommend. So what one final piece of advice do you have for our listeners? You know, when we first bought this place, and I was so excited. We have quite a big place here. We were able to pick it up fairly cheap at the end of the farm crisis. And I had done so much research and reading and talked to people and gotten advice. And I wanted to do all these things. And I had paralyzed myself. I was thinking all this stuff. And I was thinking, oh, what if I do something wrong? Or where do I start? And how is all this going to happen? And I was walking with a friend one day out in our back pasture. And I said, I just... I just don't know if I'm going to do anything right here. And she said, it's your farm. Do whatever you want. That was the best advice I have ever gotten. It's your place. Do whatever you want. Yeah, nice. And that was so freeing. (laughs) So, yeah, try everything. See what works. Don't worry about it. Have fun. I'm going to take this one step further, and I'm going to say it's your life. Yeah, and you only get one. Yeah. You only get one. So why not have fun? Thank you so much for joining us on the show today, Anne. You're welcome. It was a pleasure. So how can our listeners get a hold of you? You're welcome to email me at shansena, S-H-A-N-S-E-N-A, at centurytel.net. Perfect. You can also find show notes from today's podcast at urbanfarm.org forward slash Ann Larkin Hansen. Well, that's it for today. Thanks for joining us on the Urban Farm Podcast. Healthy food is something that everybody wants. Delicious and nutritious and right outside your own door is even better. Just text GARDEN to 44222 or visit IWANTTOGARDEN.COM and you'll receive our free webinar about the seven key factors you need to know to grow your own food. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Urban Farm Podcast. Remember to listen for tips, advice, and resources to help you on your journey with urban farming. You can find us on the web at urbanfarm.org or send us an email to podcast at urbanfarm.org. In the words of Vincent Van Gogh, great things are done by a series of small things brought together. 
Be encouraged that with each lesson learned and skill developed, you are one step closer in the direction of your dreams. One of the first things that many of us learn when we start to garden is how to water and fertilize the soil. But there is an exception to this rule and it's called foliar feeding. You should foliar feed or water the leaves of your plant with liquid fertilizer when you want certain nutrients to be absorbed better. Not only are the leaves great at uptaking liquid fertilizer, if your soil isn't very good or your pH is off, foliar feeding can help your veggies and fruit trees quickly get the nutrients they need to thrive. If you're ready to start foliar feeding for maximum growth yields and quality, head on over to urbanfarm.org forward slash feed the leaves to see our selection of foliar feeding products. That's urbanfarm.org forward slash feed the leaves.